a lot of these views of conservatives were just no longer being accepted, especially on the military and foreign policy front. The National Review had a very famous cover page called uh, Unpatriotic Conservatives, uh, which criticized conservatives, frankly, like the bookmen, um, for being hesitant to uh, be involved in continuous warfare. And uh, that debate, I think, is still going on. From a, you know, from a conservative point of view, continued military presence is a solvent of everything conservatives should care about. That's Gerald Russello, editor of The University Bookman, a publication founded in 1960 by the traditionalist conservative Russell Kirk. The University Bookman, like many conservative magazines and journals, is a site where, either implicitly or explicitly, there's really a debate going on right now about the, what the word conservative even means. A couple weeks ago, the Washington Post profiled a number of magazines on the right that have been forced by the rise of Trump and Trumpism to stake a claim. Is Trump conservative? Is the Republican Party conservative? Who really gets to decide? Gerald Russello provides an interesting perspective on this question because the publication he edits, the University Bookman, is really a review of books and culture. It doesn't respond directly to the news cycle and rarely takes up specific matters of policy. I ask Gerald whether his and the publication's bird's eye view of Trump and the Republican Party helps him see the current debate over conservatism differently. I ask whether he thinks his publication is really political at all or whether it's simply cultural. And if so, what does cultural conservatism even mean, since it too is a term bandied about so often that it could signify a lot of different things to a lot of different people? I start by asking Gerald what, what function, excuse me, Russell Kirk hoped the University Bookman would serve when he founded it in 1960, and whether that function has changed as the times have changed. All that's coming up. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. I think that his initial goal uh, in founding the Bookman in 60 was to really focus on education and uh, educational textbooks in particular. He was very concerned uh, coming out of the 1950s that uh, Americans, high school students, college students, were not being taught the principles either of Western civilization or uh American culture, American civilization, American principles, yeah, in a way that was comprehensible and explained uh, what those principles were. And so uh, he founded the Brooklyn in part to get academics together who could look at textbooks and see, for example, uh, their portrayal, those textbooks portrayal, that is, of American history, of Western civilization, of Western history of ideas. Uh, and I think in part this was uh, arose both out of his own background as a university teacher. He taught briefly in Michigan before he, he stopped to work full-time as a writer, and then from then on through the 50s, 60s, and 70s had various visiting appointments at various places. So he was always very interested in uh, education and what he called the higher learning, uh, which was the development of uh, the history of ideas and uh, American principles. And he had written a book called The American Cause, uh, where he was uh, which arose out of out of Korea, really, where he learned that American prisoners of war uh, in Korea could not uh, explain or defend American principles when in captivity, uh, and did not seem to have a very deep understanding of what it was they were fighting for. And so he wrote a book, a separate book called The American Cause, that was meant to explain in a in a brief 
uh, relatively brief format what those principles were. And the Bookman is sort of another part of that project to explain what those principles were and look at how they're how it was being taught. Uh, because he was he Kirk was concerned that too much of that was being lost, and so people would graduate with either very little knowledge of the uniqueness of Western civilization or American principles uh, or an ideological understanding. And he was very much opposed to what he, to ideology of any kind, right or left. Um, and he was concerned that uh, well before terms like political correctness or what have you were uh, common, he was very concerned with the drift of education to a more ideological us versus them, very black and white kind of view. Do you, would you describe the vocation or the mission of the University of Bookman um, as you and your writers cultivate it now and apply it now? Is it the same as 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 when Kirk founded it? Is it is it primarily concerned with say what's taught in universities or in high schools? I would say that it's it has it, that's remained a focus, but it has shifted. Uh, Kirk was editor for uh, many years, almost up until his death in nineteen ninety four. And then uh, his son-in-law, Jeff Nelson, took it over for a while, and then I've had it for the last 10 years or so. And although we continue to review books that are used in colleges, and we have a lot of academics write for us, and we do have, a, have an interest, for example, in uh, intellectual currents in the university, we really expanded a, a little bit more, uh, partially because we're now available, like many other magazines, online, so our audience is quite different than it was when Kirk was writing and much broader, that we've, we've instead tried to engage in separate conversations. Uh, education is one, but certainly wider cultural currents within conservatism generally and American culture more widely are things that we're now just as interested in. And Kirk was never doctrinaire, even in his coverage of the Bookman. Uh, he always had a pretty much a wide variety of contributors. And in that spirit, we try to maintain continuity. But we cover a number of different topics, and we cover all many topics other than uh, college or high school textbooks. So right now, there's a lot of debate going on about what it means to be conservative. Um, you probably saw, maybe you saw recently that piece in the Washington Post um, about what, mm -hmm. the, what yeah, right, so the author T.A. Frank says or argues that right now it is the golden age of conservative magazines. Um, a general point of the article is that there are currently a number of conservative publications or publications on the right that are carving out their sort of niches and in their own way they're wrestling over the definition of conservatism uh, one central question seems to be which and it makes sense does conservatism have anything to do with trump or trumpism or you know the republican party as it currently exists and holds power um is is that is that a central question that you and your writers are asking right now? Are you are you participating in the debate over the meaning of conservatism? And if so, um, what claim do you stake on it? Yeah, I, I think that the, the Bookman does have a unique place in that conversation. Uh, we are among the oldest uh, of conservative-type publications, and we were founded, of course, as you mentioned at the outset, by Russell Kirk, who's a founder, if not the most important figure in what's called traditionalist conservatism. So we're, we're very much in that debate, and we, we often have reviews and people writing for us to talk about uh, where is conservatism going, what does it mean, and how does that contrast with contemporary liberalism and its issues uh, as we go through this current presidency as well as this larger cultural moment. 
So I, I guess I, I, I assumed it, but I should just ask you um, outright, is the University Bookman, or would you describe the University Bookman as a traditionalist conservative publication? I would. I would, in, in the sense that uh, we, we, take from, we take our bearings really from Kirk, and Kirk had a number of uh, touch points for conservatism, uh, really a, a focus on what he called the moral imagination, uh, there is a focus on the importance of culture as a driver of politics and not the other way around, uh, as well as a driver of uh, economics uh, rather than the other way around. So that does put us, uh, it has put us at some um, contrary points to some of what people typically think of as conservatism, which is more uh, a straightforward uh, or strident defense of the free market, for example, which is not uh, would not be a Kirkian type of conservatism, and so we we very much still fit in that mold of traditionalist conservatism, which is really focused on uh, cultural issues uh, and how they play into politics, uh, and then also about how ideas are transmitted and communicated. And one of the interesting things about Kirk, uh, were, and in part why I think this is this could be a Kirkian moment, is the the collapse of uh, liberalism and the collapse of the story that liberalism tells, which is one of unfettered progress, where we, we leave all constraints of belief or nationality or culture just to become these embodied egos, uh, has been proven in many ways to be false uh, and to have real limitations. We, we see that in a lot of ways with from everything from this free speech debates in college campuses uh, where certain ideas are declared out of bounds uh, to other topics in culture and, and politics. And Kirk, I think, anticipated that. He always thought that liberalism would end uh, and was writing even in the early 1960s of a, quote, postmodern age that would be an age of the imagination. And that's really the role that the bookman is trying to fill. It's trying to tell the stories and review those important books that are telling an alternative story to liberalism. I think that one of the problems conservatism has uh, in its current moment, although I agree with Frank that I think it is a, a very good age for conservative magazines, but one of the issues that it's wrestling with is that for a long time it has shared, or at least parts of it have shared, some of the same suppositions as liberalism. And so as liberalism goes through this uh, agony uh, of what to do next with its future, if anything, conservatism suffers from that a little bit as well. And Kirk's type of conservatism I think, uh, is able to avoid that. It's not stuck to a narrative of progress, economic or cultural, the way liberalism is, and instead focuses more on uh, the uh, imaginative ability to create a narrative, to create a culture that binds people together and binds generations together in a way that I think is very important right now. Uh, book coverage, as you know, and as anyone who's followed the industry knows, has declined over the last five or ten years uh, with the rise of e-books and, and other things. Publications just aren't covering as many books as they used to. But conversely, at least on the left, a number of publications have arisen that do cover books. Uh, there have been magazines like Jacobin, the Los Angeles Review of Books, N Plus One, 
Uh, there are others that have uh, that are relatively recent that take book coverage seriously, and I think that uh, this is an important area for conservative publications to address. Books still drive the conversation; they still drive uh, the battle of ideas, and most uh, conservative publications could use more uh, rather than less book coverage. And on the right, there's only one uh, book review that I know of that's purely dedicated to review coverage, which is the Claremont Review of Books, which is a great publication, but is only one. Uh, the other journals, uh, especially the ones that were mentioned this past weekend uh, in the Washington Post by Frank, uh, all have uh, book coverage, but also cover lots of other things. So I think that the book, when it being devoted to important books, uh, is able to expand that coverage and continue the conversation from a conservative angle, including covering books that those other publications don't, or covering important works that were neglected uh, by other publications, even sometimes other conservative publications. And for example, one thing that we're able to do, uh, because we're, we're able to cover books that uh, don't necessarily have to be especially recent, we cover a fair amount of books in other languages that are not yet translated mm. into English. So we've done a couple of German books, some French books, uh, that touch on issues like culture, immigration, religion, other ideas. Uh, that are of interest to an American audience, but haven't haven't yet found an American or English language publisher. So I think that's another way that uh, the Bookman is able to add its voice uh, to other publications on the right. So I guess I'm wondering, uh, it it does seem like the definition of conservatism as that term is sort of bandied about, um, certainly in the mainstream media, certainly on Fox News and MSNBC, or in most (laughs) of the publications that Frank writes about, say, like National Review. Um, the, The question of conservatism is the question of politics, right? So it's conservatism has a political meaning. It usually relates to very particular um, policy beliefs or measures or preferences. Um, When you say that, that in your view, um, political and economic questions are uh, come after cultural ones. What do you mean by that? Do you mean, um, do you mean that your primary interest as a, as a conservative or as a conservative publication is in um, staking a claim about what good literature is or what philosophy should look like or what even film or cinema or television should look like? Yeah, I think that's right. I think if you were to take a look, for example, at the cultural picture in 1980 compared to today, even with continued Republican, for example, dominance at various levels of government, no conservative could say that 2018 is a more conservative uh, culturally or socially environment than 1980. And so a Kirkian view would say that the emphasis on political victory comes at a cost, and that cost has been really lost at the cultural level, and that uh, there have been elites in academia, in Hollywood, in the media that, are, as is well known, are not conservative, and they have created the cultural context in which people even talk about political ideas. And so a Kirkian uh, conservatism would, would have less focus on politics and more focus, for example, on creating cultural products, uh, television, video games, movies, all sorts of things that people consume uh, as a way to influence the culture. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the mistake I think that a lot of mainstream conservative organizations have made is that they've misunderstood political victory as uh, substantive uh, conservative policy positions. That is to say, 
I so I guess they, I'm wondering um, you can win a lot of victories by being anti-liberal, which is what a lot of conservatives are, which is perfectly in, fine. Um, uh, it simply the reviewing of books. Taxes, that's, that's one thing I'm interested in, is what gap respects. you think but, um, the Bookman fills in, not just in um, 25, conservative years, reviewing, not really but just the reviewing a, of, uh, a, of literature a that and is of political history or philosophy generally. And so that would mean, for example, things like focusing on smaller communities. That would mean things like uh, creating cultural products that are uh, widely reviewed and that reflect what Kirk called the permanent things. And you just don't see an, uh, enough of that despite Republican victories. So in that sense, I think Kirk did see culture as a driver of politics in the sense that we have a culture that uh, I think absolutizes the individual, individual choice. And among Republicans, for example, that might mean unfettered economic choice, whereas in uh, among liberals, it's unfettered to personal choice in various areas of conduct. But as Patrick Deneen, whose book we just reviewed a couple of weeks ago, says, uh, those are basically based on the same premise of the individual person, which is a liberal premise of an autonomous individual. Kirk's view of, of the person was much more communal and uh, an old word communitarian that was common a couple of decades ago which really stressed our bonds to one another, including bonds to people who had come before us, as well as bonds to people who are yet to come, which does set up a different cultural matrix uh, and really looks at the individual differently. And because it looks at the individual differently, necessarily it must look at politics differently. So um, I, I have two questions about um, yeah. what you just said. The first, I guess, is is just about the permanent thing. So you said that um, that Kirk would have preferred and perhaps that uh, that the many of the writers at the university, Bookman would prefer a culture um, or a set of literary texts, say, um, that uh, reflect or communicate the permanent things. What are those things? Well, Kirk uh, wrote them in the, uh, in the first chapter or two of his book, uh, The Conservative Mind, which first came out in 1953 and is the idea, really, that he's most known for. Uh, and... There, he varied them a little bit over time, but uh, he basically had you know, five or six of them. And I'm just pulling up my, uh, my copy here of The Conservative Mind. And he, if I can pull this up. Of course. And he says, that, he says that there are a couple of things. One is that there's an enduring moral order. Uh, and by that, he didn't mean some kind of ideological sense of lists of do's and don'ts, but more that that our conduct is comprehensible by reason, that we can actually reason to a way of behavior that is more conducive to our own happiness and the happiness of our communities than, uh, than just being either unknowable completely or completely up to individual choice with no, no ability to distinguish good choices from bad. He also was a, you know, he became a religious believer. So at, at some point he associated that moral order with, uh, with God and with religious belief, but when he wrote the conservative mind, he wasn't actually a member of any church, and so he didn't he didn't really think in those terms uh, then. And so he just thought that as a matter of just rationality, you you can identify um, a transcendent order, which is what he called it. Another another thing that he that he called a permanent thing that he thought distinguished conservatives was an affection. I'm quoting now an affection for the proliferating proliferating variety and mystery of human existence, as opposed to the narrowing uniformity, egalitarianism, and utilitarian aims of most radical systems. And so what he means by that is that 
he really was a uh, a champion of locality and diversity in its true sense, intellectual diversity, social diversity. People had the right, and it was a benefit of human existence to associate in various ways. And that uh, an attempt, both by the right and the left, to impose an equality of ideology, that is to say everybody must be the same in every respect and have similar opinions in every topic, uh, which again you see in uh, in, de- in public debates and in colleges of excluding campus speakers and so on, that was uh, that was antithetical to a conservative outlook. You know, conservatives like uh, that we like variety, we like diversity, that we like human cultures developing differently. That's a good thing about humanity. Uh, and he, you know, he also thought that uh, that freedom and property were closely linked. He was a, a great de- defender of private property, uh, and he also describe what he called uh, faith in prescription and distrust of sophisters, calculators, and economists <laughs> who would reconstruct society upon abstract designs. And he gets that quote from Edmund Burke. Right, that sounds a little, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and what he means by that is just the, the opposite or the uh, obverse of this defense of diversity and variety, right? He does not think that society can be reconstructed according to some abstract design. And so when... Uh, when liberals, for example, during the Obama administration, used Title IX to enforce some kind of gender equality along their abstract view of how men and women should interact, or when uh, right-wingers use the tax code as some kind of blueprint for how people should behave according to some abstract society, neither of those is really fully compatible with a conservative outlook. We just don't think that that, uh, plans can be made... uh, ex ante about how what society should look like. And so that conservative distrust of those kinds of uh, abstract plans really drives Kirk in many ways, because in some, in some ways he seemed, uh, and until recently, I would say in the 80s and 90s, for example, people thought he was too backward, that he, you know, he was no longer relevant to the discussion. But I think in the last, you know, especially during the Obama administration, we saw the real effects of what a uh, abstract liberal ideology could do across different aspects of society. And so we need to to come back to that as conservatives and really be suspicious of anyone that could tell us that there's a cure-all uh, or a perfect solution to how society ought to be governed. So I, I'm, I'm interested in this notion of um, communitarianism or of building community. I'm, hmm, I wonder in what direction I should direct i should put this question uh so i I am as i say i'm interested in this question of community and and this interest in um preserving um um a sense of uh small communities as being organically developed and existing as a kind of small organism um that is as opposed to say um living in a living in a large state uh in which um most of life is administered by abstract plan i mean it does seem like to your point about the cracking up of liberalism i noticed in your recent issue you had a couple i think a couple um reviews of patrick deneen's mm-hmm. new book um I, that's that's a book that's interesting and it's gotten um positively reviewed or even um, um advanced praise by writers and thinkers on the left and right and by by right. by the right i mean sort of the traditionalist conservative set and on the left, I mean uh, folks more interested in opposition to neoliberalism, say. 
And both right. of those groups seem generally interested in community as such and in an understanding of the duties that we have to each other and in opposition to this notion that we're all just individual atoms um, and that, um, that, that, that the human person is a, merely an economic unit. Um, what's, could you just talk a bit more about the um, vision of community, of small community that you would say perhaps writers at the university, Bookman, have, or that Kirk had, um, um, and set that perhaps against to what you assume or what you've read might be um, the, the left's preference of definition of community. Sure, sure. Uh, and just to give context, uh, as, as you know, I'm sure, uh, Russell Kirk spent uh, his life in Michigan, where he lived uh, either in, he was born in Plymouth, where his family was from, and lived for most of his adult life in Macosta, which is a, a very small town in Michigan where his uh, part of his family settled. Uh, and so he was he he had that view of community in mind where the the population was relatively stable, that people had a way to make a living without having to travel far distances to a big city, that the community had its own identifiable culture. And I think that that's something that is opposed to neoliberalism and that a lot of uh, liberals actually also would support. Uh, that is to say, there's there's certainly a stream of liberalism that supports community, that supports local organizations, that supports, that they would characterize it perhaps in more, in ways that are that are different than a conservative would. But as an example, Rod Dreher's book, not The Benedict Option, which is his most recent one, but his first book, Crunchy Cons, uh, profiled lots of different people who were creating these alternative communities, not all of whom were on the right. Uh, and some of whom actually would be considered more radical on the left side, but they all shared this view that uh, having humans interact in relationship to one another and not through large organizations, either through bureaucracies or through large corporations, was a more preferable way for society to be organized. And insofar as Kirk had any specific policy prescriptions, it probably would be in, in ways to support those small communities and at the Bookman, we're, I think we're still very much sympathetic to that view. I like to think that we don't have a doctrinaire view even at the Bookman. We allow lots mm. of different kinds of conservative voices to come out. But I think that we still share that there is, that there, there is a flaw in that, uh, in that neoliberal view of the person. You know, there's, there's a lot of people in some academic scholarship that tries to defend, quote, the cosmopolitan citizen, the citizen from nowhere. But I think that the that the the jury is very much still out on whether that is uh, a any kind of really just way to organize society, especially in view of uh, some very significant problems in the West of material inequality between, say, the elites on the coasts who have more in common with elites around the world than people in their own city, uh, as you know, as well as people in smaller communities where this vision of uh, getting up and leaving your hometown is a mark of success. You know, Bill Kaufman, who's a big favorite of, of mine, uh, the, uh, and some, some other folks at the book, then, who lives in upstate New York, once said that, the, you know, it's, 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 it's a mark of approval in American society where someone grows up and says, you'll go far. Well, right. why would they want to go far from their home, right? And that, that is a definite, now in some ways that is a very definite American way to look at things, but it should be looked upon with a little bit of caution. And in my own, you know, my own work, uh, I've had to wrestle with that. I grew up in New York City. Uh, which uh, to Kirk, of course, was this big behemoth uh, of of an urban center. But even within 
uh, New York City, of course, anyone who knows it well knows, it's, it is composed of lots of neighborhoods uh, and lots of communities that are self-identifying. And I think that that is that insight that I think conservative ha- conservatives have, which is that's how people naturally organize themselves. Even, even cosmopolitans, even citizens from nowhere, like to think they could recognize one another. That is to say, they, they themselves form a community. They're really not from nowhere. They're just from a place that perhaps is more self-constructed or thinly constructed than someone who grew up in a town where his ancestors have lived for a very long period of time. So people are naturally community building and naturally tradition regarding. And I think a Kirkian conservatism really respects that. And again, insofar as there are policy prescriptions here, would support uh, measures that recognize those communities and allow them to exist as their own, rather than try and uh, amalgamate them into some larger entity. So um, you, you, you did mention that you you prize the university book minute as not being doctrinaire, even among or even on the the conservative right or center right. Um, what uh, you know, I was just talking with someone um, at the Nation who described the Nation magazine, who described that magazine as a place where they like to they like to think or believe that it's a place where a variety of of views on the left could sort of clash and collide. Um, and and I'm I guess I'm just wondering what central debates do you think um, are happening at the University of Bookman, or I guess perhaps just happening between conservative magazines right now um, um, that you think are really central to defining what it means and what it will mean to be um, a conservative, say, in the age of Trump, um, a contra Trump or for Trump or uninterested in Trump? Um, um, right, right. <laughs> which, is, which is, I suppose, also an option, although it might be a cop-out, but I, but I do wonder that. <laughs> Uh, well, I would say there are a couple. There's certainly the immigration debate, uh, which we have participated in, where we had, we did publish a symposium of a number of different writers uh, from different places who had differing views on uh, American policy towards immigrants, uh, and we've had we've had, had a number of debates about the economics broadly understood. You know, what does a free market mean? Uh, how free should it be? You know, is there any restrictions on it that could be placed? Is there a way to put cultural uh, context around what the free market means? Uh, we've also had a fair amount of reviews over the years about American foreign policy and uh, whether, especially after 9-11 and, and the end of the Cold War in 1989, whether we needed to have as much of a superpower presence around the world and what would that mean going forward. And I think that those debates are still happening among and between conservatives, you know, there's there's a lot of conservatives of my generation, sort of uh, Reagan-esque, uh, who who find it hard to to understand that America may not want to be or should not be a world superpower. That is to say, once communism fell, uh, we we maybe didn't need to have a dominant view on the world stage the way that that it had been because it no longer this enemy was no longer opposed to us. Uh, and similarly with immigration, I think that there's there is a healthy debate going on the right, really, I think probably more healthy than one on the left about uh, what should America's role towards immigrants be? How open should America be to continued um, influx of immigrants and what those policy parameters might be? And so we've tried to participate uh, in, in, the, in those debates and in the some of which were to go back to Frank's point, were much more constricted in say, the early 90s or mid-90s, or even up until 2000, uh, uh, September 11th, 
where a lot of these views of conservatives were just no longer being accepted, especially on the military and foreign policy front. The National Review had a very famous cover page called uh, Unpatriotic Conservatives, uh, which criticized conservatives, frankly, like the bookmen, um, for being hesitant to uh, be involved in continuous warfare. Mm. And uh, that debate, I think, is still going on. The American conservative, where my friend Dan McCarthy and, and, and had been for a long time, and now my friend Brad Berzer is in, in charge of, uh, I think we had the fight to recast that conservative view uh, that, from a, you know, from a conservative point of view, continued military presence is a solvent of everything conservatives should care about. It's a solvent of tradition, of, commun- of, of bonds to one's native land. The military is able, thankfully, to build through its own esprit de corps, able to build up its own sort of community, but it does become very large and unwieldy when it's around the world uh, and has an indefinite mission for an indefinite length of time. That's very bad for conservative principles uh, in some ways. I think that is a very healthy debate to have. And even even though that may overlap with some uh, progressive or left-wing critiques of militarism, I still think it's a debate that the right should have and should be having. So, and, and with yeah. Re- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. With respect to with respect to Trump, you know, in some respect, this the, the Trump's election, uh, and this is a point not original to me, really brought forth a lot of those underlying disputes. Uh, Trump is, you know, not the most articulate spokesman for any type of conservatism, but he is he has shifted the debate and allowed a lot of people to say a lot of things that they wouldn't have been able to say before, and certainly would not have been. Uh, as publicized for saying so conservatives that did criti- did critique uh, military intervention that did have non-establishment views of immigration and even some of the attacks on the administrative state i think are all um, being conducted in a way that uh, despite trouble because of him has allowed this area of conversation to open in a way that really it hadn't been before and so although different conservatives take different view of Trump as a person and Trump as the administration, I think it really, it's really beyond question that, that his administration has really broken open the ability of conservatives to sit back and say, well, what is it that we stand for now, 30-plus years after Reagan and a decade or more after September 11th, that we can put forth as a positive conservative program? Do you think that there will um, emerge any kind of consensus to that question? I mean, I'm struck just by the the, the narrative of um, conservatism in like the, in the past forty years. I mean, it, it it has been. I think George Nash argues this in his book, um, uh, the Conservative Intellectual Movement. It has been a kind of collection of um, oppositionist stances against liberalism um, or vital centrist liberalism. Uh, and the, I mean, those those positions have been various. So I mean, the 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 position you've described on foreign policy is um, is uh, one associated, as you say, with traditionalist conservatism, and it cares about communities um, in a way that would want to preserve, as you as you've described, preserve communities here at home, and also I imagine in many cases preserve the communities of the places right. that we uh, invade. Um, <laughs> but. Right. But right. but so there's that position, which is uh, isolationist is kind of a is kind of a bad word. Uh, maybe just anti-interventionist. Um, there's that position, but then of course there's the neoconservative position, which is the polar opposite. So as as it, it Trump, it does seem like the um, the view of a lot of conservative commentators is as you have described, is that 
the Trump moment does provide some kind of occasion, an urgent occasion, um, to redefine for a new generation what conservatism ought to mean. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, are there are there issues around which you think conservatives are generally coming to consensus, or will after the Trump moment will there be as many views uh, um, as there were before Trump? Uh, I, although it's hard to predict, obviously, I do I do agree with George uh, Nash. I mean, conservatism has always been and is likely to be, just like any intellectual movement is, uh, composed of a variety of opinions and points of view around the topics of the day. So I, I don't see uh, conservatives signing up 100% for uh, a particular position, but of course they, mm -hmm. they never have, even after mm -hmm. September 11th where a lot of conservatives or conservatism was associated with strong militarism, there was a very strong voice in dissent uh, that has now come to the fore. Right. I, I do think that, that what, I, what I think actually will, be, will happen is that unlike the previous uh, 20 years, 25 years, I think that although conservatism will still be in opposition to uh, liberalism, I think that it will for lack of a better term, get more cultural respect. Because I think mm. that they're, given the debate that's going on, I think that more people are being allowed into the conversation and more opinions are being allowed than otherwise were. And so this gives conservatives an opportunity to say, we're not simply in opposition. We actually have a positive program. And the group of conservatives that can do that, I think will be the ones that are able to triumph. And so whether that is a a new view of American power that's more restrained, whether that's a new view of the administrative state that no longer seeks to impose either right-wing or left-wing values, but simply seems to shrink it in order for people to live more free lives. I think those will be the conservatives that take the upper hand. Uh, the only area perhaps I can see some coalescence around uh, is, is the sense that uh, – the elite culture, and by this I mean not necessarily politics, but uh, the media and so on, really needs to be uh, opposed or uh, an alternative cultural apparatus created. I think that there has been some divide among conservatives where some conservatives will say, don't worry about Hollywood, because every once in a while they make uh, a movie that's respectful of the military, for example, or American values or what have you. And so you know, everything else that happens there really doesn't need to be uh, paid attention to, whereas other conservatives will say, well, all of that that comes out of there is terrible, and uh, we need to uh, just, you know, destroy a root and branch or completely ignore it. I think that instead what we're seeing is a recognition that even with a Republican White House and Republican uh, Congress and a lot of the state level, that that still isn't affecting the kind of change that a lot of conservatives want and that more conservatives perhaps need to go to Hollywood rather than to D.C. or New York uh, and create those kind of projects, which will, I think, suddenly influence the culture. So if it's all right, Gerald, I'd just love to ask a couple questions yeah. about you. Um, so Sure. Uh, first, where'd you, um, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but where did you grow up and uh, go to school? Uh, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, in, in, 
an area right along the edge of Jamaica Bay. Um, and as I wrote, I wrote a piece for First Things about Brooklyn. There was a book, a relatively famous uh, sociological, uh, sociological book uh, called Jews and Italians Against Liberalism, uh, which was based about a couple of neighborhoods over from mine in Brooklyn. And that was very much the neighborhood that I grew up, very <laughs> ethnic, uh, mostly Jewish, Italian, Irish, uh, and uh, very sort of enclosed within itself, uh, but still, you know, at least in my imagination and memory, very supportive. Um, I went to uh, Catholic grammar school, public middle school, and Catholic high school in New York City. So I, I guess, what, what was it that initially um, drew you? Would, would you have always described yourself as a conservative or a traditionalist conservative? Um, and, and if so, did that have anything to do with the um, community that you grew up in? I think I think it did. I think that that uh, my uh, my particular ethnic background is Italian, and Italians are very clannish to begin with and communal, and uh, we tend to uh, to disdain politics and you know that sort of stuff in favor of uh, your family or in your neighborhood. And in growing up, I would say that although I don't know if I would have considered myself or called myself a quote conservative, in looking back, I think I always was. Uh, at least of conservative outlook, because I kept, uh, I became aware generally that there were groups of people who did not like uh, ethnic communities, for example, who did not like religion, for example. I came up in a very a relatively religious uh, Catholic family, um, and I felt sort of a sort of a I don't know an Italian defense of my neighborhood and my family to think, well, why why are they why are they critiquing these these things that I grew up with that I valued? Uh, why why would people attack them? What were the reasons for that? And I felt myself coming up with or trying to understand reasons for defending the things that I thought valuable. And then by the time I was uh, through high school and college, I realized that that was considered a more conservative stance, at least in the contemporary ideological spectrum of the day. Uh, and so by the time I got to college, uh, I was pretty much a a conservative. I read Russell uh, in my first my first summer uh, after freshman year of college. A group of friends of mine and I all sort of thought we were conservatives, and we were saying, "Well, all right, well, what books do we need to read to figure out if that's really true?" Uh, and we picked two. We picked the conservative mind, and we picked Newman's The Idea of the University. And we read through both of those, and we at the end of those, most of us decided, "Yeah, this is this is the team I." I think I should be on <laughs> uh, because they're saying the things that make sense to me. And, and what really struck me about Kirk uh, is is really his strong narrative voice. He was often criticized for not laying out his arguments in, in, as syllogisms or as uh, reasoned propositions, but it was more creating a mood or an atmosphere or a sense of genealogy uh, rather than just a sort of strict logical argument. And as I said, some people thought that that made his arguments weaker. I tend to think that that, in retrospect, made them stronger because it anticipated our current cultural moment, right, which is where uh, a lot of uh, old stories are collapsing. And insofar as those old stories are based on liberal premises, they won't survive. Kirk had a story that was based on this uh, historical reconstruction of tradition back from Edmund Burke and then forward that was both A, recognizable, that is to say you can trace Burke to T.S. Eliot, which was his bookends of the conservative mind, as a coherent tradition of ideas, but it also was adaptable so that an Italian Catholic kid like me could say, yeah, I understand 
that. I understand that defensive tradition, and this is how my story fits into that, which, which I still think is a very powerful message. And if you know other people that I've met who've read Kirk have had a similar reaction that they did not find his account of the conservative outlook to be exclusionary at all, but rather encompassing. And I also found that very welcoming. So, I mean, one th- I, that's interesting, your description of um, of Kirk's work is um, a kind of, in a, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a form of intellectual history of the, or the history of ideas. Um, it might not be, and this is something I'm hoping we might talk about, it might not be a kind of, of history of ideas that you'd see practiced in the academy today, say. And one thing I'm wondering right. is, is um, sh- surely if you were reading him in college, um, you you probably studied, I'm imagining, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably studied history and literature, say, in college. Did you ever want to um, become an academic and go into higher education? Uh, what led you into the, um, the very interesting world in which you live, which is the world of ideas that is in some way divorced from the academy or, or linked to the right. academy, but separate from it in, I think, a crucial way? Well, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I, as an undergraduate, I studied classics. So I did Greek and Roman, uh, Greek and Latin literature. Um, and I did strongly think about going into academia, academia as a classics professor. Uh, but at least at the time I graduated, two, two, two things really uh, interceded first, uh, as my classics professors told me, uh, the job market for classicists at that time was not so great, and so they really couldn't. It was hard for them to see. I don't know how it is now, but it was hard for them to see a future for uh, for a strong academic career in the classics. Uh, although I, you know, I do have a, I have at least one friend who's my age who uh, did something similar, and he's very happy as a classics professor professor here on the East Coast. So oh, wow. it certainly was possible, but it seemed very difficult. Uh, and then secondly, I did have this view of that grew stronger after I, I went to law school in New York and I became a practicing lawyer. And I did have this view of uh, of people who could remain connected with the world of ideas and should, but still were, were not academics. Uh, you know, conservatives have often critiqued academia for being many things, among which is insular mm-hmm. and not really uh, – concerned with the problems of the day or, or what people actually think. And although I think that that can sometimes be overblown, I mean, there is a reason why academics should speak to one another and really focus on ideas within the academy. Um, I did think that it would be uh, at least of some profit to be a professional, but also maintain this connection to, to ideas. And if I could just say one more, one more thing about Kirk, if I could, uh, I mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier. I, Kirk often spoke about the imagination and what he called the age of sentiment, which was coming, which, which uh, succeeded uh, the age of reason. He felt that reason alone was insufficient to explain human experience, that people wanted imagination and emotion. And he, he wrote pretty clearly that the age of uh, sort of enlightened rationalism was coming to an end and, and we would feel things on the screen rather than read them from the page. And I think that that's the world that we live in now. And he, he thought that what he, in fact, as I said before, called the postmodern age, he thought a conservative imagination could capture that because a conservative imagination understands or should understand sentiment and the bonds of affection and loyalty and tradition and love that 
really drive people to act rather than rational arguments. And I think that that also is something that is very much needed in today's conservative landscape. And, and that there, there are certainly people who uh, have generated a similar uh, audience, you know, people like Wendell Berry, for example, who writes uh, from Kentucky and is very much rooted in his place and writes very evocatively about life in Kentucky and the importance of the small communities there. And Kirk is doing something similar. He's really creating this alternative story uh, that uh, I think explains uh, human motivation a little bit better. And he was very confident that uh, a, a positive conservative imagination could fill that void that, that the that is being left by, by liberalism. That was Gerald Russello. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarj Bar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called the flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howandsandcenter.org and follow howandsandgvsu on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter, Joe Hogan CGI. No, you can't. That's not my handle anymore. It's um, like JT Hogan or something like that. You'll find me. Thanks for listening. If you want to find me out, don't assume that you do. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Coming Around.